Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Burkett notes, This evangelist, having declared our Savior's miraculous conception in the first chapter, and recorded several remarkable circumstances relating to his birth in the second chapter, in this chapter before us, he passes over in silence the whole course of our Savior's life in private, taking no notice how he spent his minority whilst he dwelt at Nazareth which was till he was thirty years old, at which time he entered upon his public ministry, having John the Baptist for his harbinger and forerunner, as this chapter fully informs us. Verses 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. The preacher sent by God, John the Baptist a pattern of mortification and a preacher of repentance. Observe, too, the place where he was sent to preach in, the wilderness of Judea, not in populous Jerusalem, but in a barren wilderness where inhabitants are few and and probably very ignorant and rude. Learn hence that it is God's prerogative to send forth the preachers of the gospel when and whither and to what people he pleases, and none must assume the office before he be sent. Observe, three, the doctrine that he preaches, namely the doctrine of repentance. Repent ye. This was to prepare the people for the Messiah and the grace of the gospel. Learn hence that the preaching of the doctrine of repentance is absolutely necessary in order to the preparing of the hearts of sinners for the receiving Jesus Christ and his holy doctrine. Observe 4. The motives which St. John uses to enforce the exhortions into repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, now is the so much expected time of the appearing of the Messiah come. The Old Testament dispensation is now to be abolished, and the mercy and grace of the gospel is now to be revealed. Therefore, repent and amend your lives. Note thence that the free and full tender of grace and mercy in the gospel are the most alluring arguments to move a sinner to repent and to convert to God. Verse 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Burkett notes, The papists from John Baptist's living in the wilderness would make him the very first founder of the order of the hermits, but very groundlessly. For one, he did was by God's command. What they do is by the dictates of their own fancy. He busied himself in preaching in the wilderness. They bury themselves alive and do nothing. Two, he lived in the wilderness but for a time. Afterwards, we find him at court, preaching a sermon to Herod. But they bind themselves by a vow to live and die hermits. Verse 4. And the same John has his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Burkett notes, The plainness of John's habit and diet is here declared. He was habited in a plain suit of camel hair, much as Elijah was before him. And as his habit was plain, so his diet was ordinary, feeding upon herbs and such things as the wilderness affords. Hence it was that Nazarene said he was all voice, a voice in his habit, a voice in his diet, a voice in his whole conversation. His example teaches us that the ministers of the gospel are not to affect bravery in apparel or delicacy in diet but having the necessary comforts and needful conveniences of life to be therewith content. Verse 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan. Burkett notes. 
Observe here the great encouragement which John had in his ministry from the people's attendance upon it. He was now fishing for souls, and God brought the people very thick about the net of the gospel, and multitudes were enclosed, no doubt to his joy and great satisfaction. For it is a matter of great rejoicing to the ministers of Christ when they find their people forward to encourage their ministry by a diligent attendance. Verse 6. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Burkett notes. This place the papists bring to support their doctrine of auricular confession, but very groundlessly. For one, the confession of those converts was voluntary and not constrained. Two, it was general and not of every particular sin. Three, it was public and open, not in the ear of a priest. Four, it was a confession of sin committed before baptism, not after they were baptized. In all which circumstances it differs from the auricular confession of the Church of Rome very greatly. Note the confession of sin past, together with the profession of faith in and obedience to Christ for the time to come, are necessary requisites and qualifications in all persons of riper years that are admitted to baptism. John admitted these persons to baptism upon their confession of sin and promises of amendment. From whence we may learn that such persons as have been very bad upon a profession of their repentance and promising to become better may be admitted to the Holy Sacrament, provided that we warn them, as the Baptist did these, not only to make profession of repentance, but to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O you generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits met for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Burkett notes, Here we have the entertainment which John gave to his unexpected auditors, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which came to hear him and to be baptized by him. He gives them first a quick and cutting compilation, O generation of vipers. Next a sharp and severe reprehension, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It was a matter of wonder and admiration to see such men turn proselytes. Note thence that the condition of proud Pharisees, pretending and false-hearted hypocrites, though it be very dangerous, yet is not hopeless and desperate. Their salvation, though very improbable, yet must not be despaired of as impossible. And accordingly, the Baptist, having given them a smart reproof, subjoins a seasonable exhortation. Bring forth fruits met for repentance. As if he had said, Do not satisfy yourself with a bare profession of repentance, but let us see the fruits of repentance in your daily conversation. Learn hence that sincere repentance is not a barren thing, but constantly brings forth the fruits of holiness, answerable to its nature. As the body without the spirit, and as faith without works, is dead, so repentance without fruits is dead also. Observe farther how he enforces his exhortations with a necessary caution. Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, etc. As if he'd said, Trust not to your outward privileges, and glory not in them. Flatter not yourself, that because you are Abraham's seed, and the only visible church, 
that therefore the judgments of God will not reach you. For God can, out of the obdurate Gentile world, who now worship stone, raise up a people to himself and take them into covenant with himself and cast you all out who have Abraham's blood running in your veins, but nothing of Abraham's faith in your heart nor of his obedience in your lives. Now from St. John's plain dealing with these hypocritical Pharisee, we learn that it's the duty and ought to be the endeavor of the ministers of Christ to drive hypocrites from their vain confidence who do constantly bear up themselves upon their external privileges in the enjoyment of which they promise themselves a freedom from the judgments of God. Think not to say within yourselves, We have, etc. Verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Burkett notes. The Baptist, having preached the doctrine of repentance in the former verses, he backs it with a powerful motive in this verse, drawn from the certainty, the severity, and the suddenness of that vengeance which would come upon them if they continued impenitent. Now is the axe laid to the root of the trees. Learn, one, that those whose hearts are not pierced with the sword of God's word shall certainly be cut down and destroyed by the axe of his judgments. Learn that it is not unsuitable for gospel preachers to press repentance and holiness of life upon their hearers from arguments of terror. John does it here and Christ elsewhere. Observe farther that forasmuch as the sin here specified is a sin of omission which brings this sore and severe judgment, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit, as well as that which bringeth forth evil fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. We may gather that sins of omission are certainly damning, as well as sins of commission. The neglects of duty are as dangerous and damnable as the acts of sin. Such trees as stand in God's orchard and bring forth no good fruit are marked out as fuel for the devil's fire. Verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Burkett notes, In these words, John declares the excellency of Christ's person and ministry above his own. And to his person, he owns that he was not worthy to carry his shoes after him or to perform the lowest offices of service for him. And as to his office, he declares that Christ should not be baptized as he did with water, but with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That is, should plentifully pour down of the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit upon his proselytes, which, like fire, in their operation, should purify their hearts from sin, consuming their lusts and corruptions. But at the same time, he has a fiery indignation and flaming judgments to destroy and burn up impenitent sinners like combustible stubble. Where observe how Christ is represented by one and the same metaphor of fire in a way of comfort to his children, and in a way of terror unto his enemies. He is a fire unto both. He sits in his church as a refiner's fire. He is amongst his enemies as a consuming fire. A fire for his church to take comfort in, a fire for his enemies to perish by. Verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. 
and gathers wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Burkett notes, In these words, the Baptist compares Christ, the promised Messiah, to a husbandman, the Jewish church to a barn floor. The office of husbandman is to thrash, fan, and winnow his corn, separating it from the chaff, preserving the one and consuming the other. Learn hence, one, that the church is Christ's floor. Two, that this floor Christ will purge, and that thoroughly. Three, that the word of Christ is the fan in his hand, by and with which he will thoroughly purge his floor. The church is compared to a floor upon account of that mixture which is in the church. In a floor there is straw as well as grain, chaff as well as corn, tares as well as wheat, cockle and darnel as well as good seed. Thus in the church there is and will be a mixture of good and bad, saints and sinners, hypocrites and sincere Christians. But this floor Christ will purge. Purge it, but not break it up. Purge out its corruptions, but destroy not its essence and existence. And the fan with which he will purge the floor is his word, accompanied with the wind of discipline. The fan detects and discovers the chaff, and the wind dissipates and scatters it. And by the help of both, the floor is purged. His fan is in his hand, etc. Etc.